Hi, everybody. Welcome to Outbeat Radio on KRCB Windsor, Santa Rosa, a program that focuses on issues by, for, and about members of the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning communities. You can hear Outbeat Radio every Sunday night at 8 p.m. This is Living Proof, and we're your hosts. I'm Dr. Diana Grayer, and next to me is my co-host and wife, Sheridan Gold. Well, we've got an announcement to make. This is our 46th anniversary. Happy anniversary, sweetheart. Happy anniversary, Diana. (laughs) We are still here. We are still here, and we are still happy. Still laughing. And still arguing. (laughs) Still thriving. And still learning from one another. People ask us what our secret is. It's not really a secret. It is what, honey? Communication. Communication. That's it. That's it, baby. Not letting things build up and calling them as you see them and go through hard times. And yeah, this is all true. And each day we wake up and we are amazed that we are still doing this dance together. We met in 1976 at San Francisco State on the softball team. (laughs) (laughs) We were friends for a year and then we got together. But anyways, it's been a pleasure on this journey with you, my love. That's right, I agree with you. Thank you, Diana, for hanging in there with me. (laughs) But we're not the only stars here tonight, people. (laughs) We have a very, very special guest all the way from Maine. Our good buddy Ari Hilton is in the house. Yes. Woo! Hi, Ari. <laughs> hey. Hey, Sheridan. Hey, Diana. Thank you so much for having me on. I really love hanging out with you guys. Yeah, we love hanging out with you too. It's nice being in person, you being out here in California. So we wanted to take advantage of that. Ari is a trans man, a father of two sons, and was recently ordained as an interfaith chaplain that's you on the surface and we're going to get to know you a little more deeply but it is so good for you to be with us sorry thank you so much yes thank you i wouldn't want to be anywhere else i promise so stay tuned to learn more about ari (laughs) and how he navigates being trans being a parent and being a member of the clergy but first here's news and events with outbeat member and our engineer, Greg Moralia. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. This is Greg Moralia with Real Pete Radio News for the week of December 3rd, 2023. Representative Andy Golas and Senator Ted Cruz have introduced a bill to the House and Senate, respectively, that would prevent federal agencies and departments from punishing anyone who refuses to use a person's correct name or pronouns. Anyone punished for misgendering or misnaming someone could sue the federal government who disciplined them for up to $100,000. Now, this bill has no chance of passing the Democratic Senate, 
and was created in opposition to an October memo from the Department of Health and Human Services directing employees to use the names and pronouns that others use to describe themselves. The bill is co-sponsored by several other Republican representatives and numerous other far-right anti-LGBTQ plus Republicans who regularly oppose so-called, quote, woke LGBTQ plus inclusive policies. Queer civil rights lawyer Alejandra Caraballo pointed out that the bill would also require people to refer to Senator Cruz by his legal first name, Raphael, instead of his preferred nickname, Ted. The Safeguarding Honest Speech Act would, quote, prohibit the use of funds to implement, administer, or enforce measures requiring certain employees to refer to an individual by the preferred pronouns of such individual or name other than the legal name of such individual and for any other purposes. Senator Cruz wrote in a statement, quote, forcing anyone to use pronouns that don't accord with the person's biological sex is an unconstitutional violation of the First Amendment. The government has no business compelling anyone to use pronouns that contradict biological reality, end quote. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, over 75% of transgender people have experienced some form of workplace discrimination, including deliberate misgendering. And according to L.A.'s Williams Institute, transgender employees are significantly more likely to experience discrimination based on their LGBT status, including verbal and physical harassment, than cisgender, lesbian, gay, and bisexual employees. And in the state of Vermont, a Christian school was banned from competing in tournaments after its girls' basketball team refused to play against a team that included a transgender student athlete and is now suing several state agencies for religious discrimination. In February, the Mid-Vermont Christian School's girls' basketball team forfeited a playoff game against Long Trail School, withdrawing from the Vermont Division IV state tournament. At the time, Valley News reported that the school sent a letter informing the Vermont Principals Association, which oversees school sports and other activities, that they would not be entering the tournament. In an email, Vicki Fogg, who runs the school, told the local paper, quote, We believe playing against an opponent with a biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and safety of our players, end quote. The school is one of two that have sought state tuition money while attempting to sidestep the state's anti-discrimination laws. Fogg continued, quote, Allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general, end quote. The case is being represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. This is an anti-LGBTQ plus Christian legal advocacy group that the Southern Poverty Law Center has designated as a hate group. Last week, the school filed a federal lawsuit against the State Agency of Education in Vermont, alleging that it's been subjected to, quote, unconstitutional religious discrimination and hostility. And this last Friday, December 1st, was World AIDS Day. And this year, Olympian, dubbed the greatest diver in history, Greg Luganis, was recognized in the National AIDS Memorial Grove as part of an annual recognition ceremony. Luganis, who's a gay man, has been living with HIV since 1988 and received the Grove's National Leadership Recognition Award. Previous recipients of this award include former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Luganus was the second diver, and only man, in history to sweep the diving events in two consecutive Olympiads, first in 1984 in Los Angeles and then again in 1988 in Seoul, South Korea, leading him to be titled the greatest diver in history. Luganus told the Bay Area Reporter that he was honored to receive this recognition after years of being involved with the Grove. He said, quote, I've been involved with the memorial and all things they've been doing for many, many years. He added, quote, I was diagnosed HIV positive in 1988. I came out in 1995. 
there's been a long-standing connection, end quote. San Francisco's AIDS Memorial Grove is the only federally designated memorial to the AIDS epidemic. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Welcome back. This is Diane and Sheridan and Living Proof, and we are talking with Ari Hilton, our good buddy from Maine, and you are here in California. What has brought you here to California, Ari? Let us know. What, what's going on? Oh, thank you. Um, I am here in California. I love it here. It is sunny and warm, and there isn't six inches of snow on the ground right now, uh, which there is back home. I am here, ultimately, I guess, 18 years ago, I met this really funny guy in a dress who sang in in a group called the Kinsey Six and uh, went by the stage name of Winnie and was a lesbian character and hysterically funny and sang bass. And at the time, I had not yet transitioned from female to male and I was in a lesbian relationship. And we went to see them. And this this guy, Irwin, as it turns out, Irwin Keller and I hit it off as friends. We just became friends. And over the years, we've kept a relationship of some sort, you know, emailing or occasionally Facebook and checking in on each other and supporting each other in our roles and growth into being clergy. I had gone to seminary before he chose to then become what he is now, Rabbi Erwin Keller. And in many of the dark times in my life, Erwin has just shown up one way or another for me. And the I will say the, the most poignant time uh, was 12 years ago. I got clean from using uh, prescription drugs that I was abusing. And I was uh, inpatient in a horrifying little inpatient program in Maine, in a hospital that was run by nuns. And our cafeteria was literally the uh, room that had been the operating theater when the building had been built in the 1800s. So I was in this very dark and bizarre place. And I received emails from family and, and whatever. And I received this email from Irwin. And he knew where I was at and what things were kind of happening. And it was in October and we had just had high holy days. And so the, the, the scripture, the text from Torah was in the beginning. Again, it's when we start over in Genesis. And he wrote how perhaps it, this would be a new beginning for me. And that this was my new garden and that, would, that new things could grow from here and grow from me in this time of becoming a better version of myself. And uh, it hit, it hit right. It hit me right in the heart and in the gut. And it was a turning point for me wanting to get better because this was my friend reaching out from across the, the country, across the continent to say, I care about you. And from that, we continued and we would see each other when we could. And then 2020 happened and the pandemic, which for all of its hardships and losses brought me back into full community with my Jewish roots. I could not attend a synagogue where I was. It doesn't work well in Northern Maine. Uh, we don't have a lot of options. I'm not a conservative, you know, 
all those little things. And uh, immediately as the pandemic hit, Ne'er Shalom went into full force. And Irwin immediately said, log on. And from that moment on, I just came into the fold and became a part of community and, and wanted to be. And it was effortless and natural. And after it was over a year and a half of just being in Zoom, I was able to come out for the first time and meet the rest of my family. And as the years have gone on now, Urban and I both could not believe that we are in year four, will be four years of doing this now, that I am out here in this particular time because one of my adopted sisters invited me to her house for Thanksgiving and said, you're coming and this is how it's going to be. And it has been this beautiful journey and I love being here. I really consider this to be my second home. And I look forward to being able to kind of go back and forth between the two soon, more so, more than I can right now. That's why I'm here in this beautiful, sunny place. Wow, that's beautiful story. We didn't know that much about the connection and how it all started. Yeah, I feel really honored that yeah. you would, you know, spend time with us. You, you're here visiting all your peeps and he, I guess we're some of them and it's just like you are just as much my family I was sad at the thought that we would only see each other once while I was out here you know it was a, a true treat to be with you for the holiday and loved it and I was thinking ah I hope I get to see them again but I'll understand it's been a busy week and it's you know all these things so this is amazing so thank you I'm so thankful to be a part of your family. We really enjoy having you, Ari. I mean, just watching you on Zoom. It's nice to see you on Zoom and just smile at you. So that was a connection between us as well, you know. We're all family, you know. We felt that family. It's easy. You're easy, Ari. <laughs> we like easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I do. And it, it is very natural. I think that is the beauty of being LGBT, queer. We get to choose our families differently. I think sometimes than, than that heteronormative where people are kind of stuck in the, well, here's my family and all these siblings and whatever, and this is what it is. But there's always that difference, I think, that I've found over the years being a queer person that yes, my biological family has all of these things, but I'm different. I am not this, what they may have planned out for me. I'm, I'm not a heterosexual male in that cisgender male world. That's not how I, I showed up and it's not how I turned out. And I'm granted that being in this bigger queer family of we get these people in our lives. We get to choose and say this person is so important to me because they're like me and I love them because they are my family and it doesn't matter. And I suppose being a dad who is a trans man, my children are not biologically mine in any form, shape or manner, but they are my sons in ways that no one else could be. And for me, they're chosen, you know, and very chosen, very wanted, but you know, there isn't a drop of blood that we share and it is the least important thing. They're 20 and almost 18, and they are young men who have their lives. And I am so fortunate 
that they still want to be a part of mine. And, you know, having ended just recently ended a 27 year relationship with their mother, I've still got a boy who's a senior in high school who chooses to come and spend two nights in my apartment every week and makes the effort and wants to be there. And it's because I have always loved him in that way of that unconditional that I've experienced in my queer community. I get to be who I am. And so I allow my kids to be who they are. And uh, the biggest gift I'm actually getting is to be a queer mentor, not to my own kids, because it turns out they are both very heterosexual, (laughs) cisgender, like absolutely. But uh, my younger son's best friend is always wandering between bisexual and just flaming homosexual. It depends on the day. And he comes over with my son and they'll have dinner and they'll hang out and I get to be there for this other boy, the 17 year old who is exploring what it means to be queer in very small town Maine with parents who are okay, but you know, it's not great. And I get to sit there and be the dad who will listen to anything and say, oh, okay. So how's that going? You know, what's going on with you? I don't have to. And I hear more details than I've ever wanted to know about anybody. I mean, the poor guy has no filter. And, but I I think what an amazing opportunity because he knows I'm trans. But, you know, my kids know I'm trans. They really don't care. It means nothing to them other than one more embarrassing thing about their father. But for your son, though, to say, okay, to be friends with, a bisexual out person and to have dad have these conversations with my friend that says a lot about your son openness you know beautiful well you know and the the beauty i've realized in this having these conversations having what you know you you emphasize communication i've found with teenagers you just shut up and listen and ask one question go oh really tell me more about that and drop it at that point is that I realized my son is getting to hear my own feelings, my morals, my values, my whatever's they are with his friend, but I'm not lecturing him. I'm not telling him, this is what I want from you. This is what I expect and all of those things. And he can sit there and block it out or he can hear it. And I got the affirmation um, a couple of weeks ago when I started getting a text from the buddy from the best friend and i said okay what do you want you know what can i do and he said can you call me sure i'll call you why not and we talked out this issue that he was having and he said thanks i i was talking to your son but he said he he just couldn't come up with anything else and he said to call you because you were the smartest person he knew whoa beautiful and i just i thought okay i've we've done this right all right and and immediately after that phone call i called my son and i said you're welcome and he's like what and i said yeah i just talked you know who off a ledge it's like oh yeah (laughs) thanks and i told him i said you know i'm sure you were you were getting there and he said yeah but i just didn't know what else to say and you can fix anything when it comes to kids. And he said, 
of which I consider myself some of the time. <laughs> Keep coming. He said, bring it, Dad. That is a bring huge it. compliment. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was really taken by it. And so I feel like that's where I'm I'm hitting that groove. Finally, it's uh, it's hard to be a parent of young adults and really let them go and say it's okay to make every mistake you're going to make, even though I don't want you to make them because I made them. But that's how you get to be who you are. And um, I am I am truly I, I hate overusing the word blessed. Uh, it gets bandied about far too much at this point. And, but I am blessed. I am blessed to have them and to have the relationship I have with both of them. And, you know, the older one is busy and working and in college and, and all the time. And he still texts, you know, we text at least once a week and we get together every so often. And I do exactly what I'm supposed to do, which is make food, sit there and listen to him talk about things. I have no understanding or interest in. <laughs> and just nod and smile and go, oh, that's really awesome, buddy. That makes sense. <laughs> and it's a good thing. So wh where do you get your skills from? I mean, being a chaplain, I mean, um, what, what? Well, I mean, it's beautiful because I, ha I have that sense about you, Ari, that you do sit and listen and you're gentle and you, you, you're welcoming to people. And I see that in adults as well. Thank you. Part of it is definitely the chaplaincy. Uh, part of it is having grown up in a very liberal area, um, being brought up in diversity, uh, even though I grew up in Maine, which is truly the whitest state in the country. We're also the uh, oldest state at this point in terms of our median age. We are very old, very white. I grew up in a little town called Agunquit. Uh, which is a gay Mecca. It was an artist colony starting in the late 1800s. And so it obviously became a gay area. And uh, I always share the fact that the drag bar downtown, now called Main Street, has been a drag bar my entire life. And I'm just shy of 50. So my mother was in the arts. I, I came out of this very artistic, educated family. And so gay was just normal. Queer was, we didn't use the word queer in the 70s in a positive way, necessarily, but it was just normal. And so this acceptance, and I guess one of the, the gifts of my mom, who is utterly insane, and, and she is a fantastic, eccentric, wonderful human being, as long as she's not your own mother. She was an opera singer and a musician. And so there were people always in and out of our house taking lessons I literally grew up laying underneath a Mason and Hamlin grand piano from the time I laid under anything. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time and I, I sat through every piano and voice lesson she ever gave because I was little and needed something. She wanted to keep an eye on me. So there I was on the sofa. I can conduct in my sleep because she saw a bored little child and said, here, here's how we conduct four. All right, you do this while this person has this lesson. Keep going. And she played in nursing homes and she played in churches. She was a church organist. And, and so I went everywhere. I was an only child. I was just dragged about. And uh, I learned to meet people where they were. And it just continued on. I was also the peacemaker in the family. My family is 
a disastrous mental health. Anyway, I'm the one who takes his meds. Um, nobody else takes meds in the family, but I do. And so they think I'm weird because I go to therapy and take medications. And yes. So I learned it. I learned it through all of that and just having compassion and having grandparents who were compassionate and took care of me. And when I first went off to college, um, I actually decided to be the ultimate rebellious teenager. And in my family, that meant going to an evangelical, charismatic Christian college. And I ended up in one of the extra programs and because I, I found things to do. And there was a group that was doing hospice work. And I was 19 and didn't know any better. Uh, and was just too, you know, nobody told me not to. And I ended up doing end-stage AIDS work in the mid-90s in Boston. And that was where I found my spot. Uh, it just clicked. I was in with, and I will say by 95, 94, 95, the patients in Boston that I was seeing were IV drug users by that point. And they were very young. And of course, being 19, I didn't realize they were young. I thought, I thought they were older. I had no clue. I really had no clue what I was doing. And what was required of me in that situation was to sit quietly and be present and break the conventional rules of, uh, of our time of, I would give foot rubs or a back rub, or I would listen to somebody read a poem about themselves or what their life was like or how they had ended up there. And it was that aha moment for me that, oh, I can do this. So this is what I do. And I knew that calling and I've been doing death and dying work for the better part of 30 years now. When, when anyone ever asks, you know, I'll say, oh, I'm a hospice chaplain. I do this work. And they'll say, I don't know how you can possibly do that. That's so hard. And, and I say, well, I don't think any of us who are hospice chaplains, we don't set out going, hey, I would love to do this. This is not, you know, your first thought, but we do it because we can. It's a calling that you get. And it's one I have, I have continued and I hold. And there is something immeasurably beautiful um, in being present for someone as they are transitioning from this experience to whatever their next experience is. And I guess coming back around to my own transition, to my own physical transition from female to male, I see it similarly, that it's moving from one version of who you are in this world to another. And uh, so I guess I bring that with me, that listening, that compassion, to know what it is to not feel correct on the inside, to not feel okay with yourself. So I bring, I bring presence. And the one thing I, I learned most in my, my ordination program that I recently finished up, there's a, a line of thought that chaplains and, and rabbis and that were, were vessels, were containers for God. And I rejected that completely. And I said, no, I'm a conduit. I can barely hold my own stuff. I'm not going to hold God's or anybody else's. Uh, that's not my job. So I guess that presence piece comes in and that I walk into a situation 
knowing that I am a representation of the divine for somebody, whatever that is, good, bad, indifferent. And I try to meet people in life that way, that I'm representing whatever it is, who knows. Uh, But in those settings, when I am in any chaplaincy, pastoral role, I know that I'm being viewed through this lens of I'm representing. And I want to make that as kind and compassionate and calm a presence. I don't want to bring a vengeful, angry God. And I can go into it knowing that if you need to scream at God because you're angry and you're hurt and you're upset, go ahead. I'm here for that. And I don't take it personally. If you need to sob, if you need to sit there and never say a word, fine. That is what I'm here for. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of then reset and knowing my own boundaries and knowing when I can and can't do things. And I will say the thing I've learned most is I can't do my own family. So I'm very fortunate that my boys see me as someone safe to talk to, but I did one family funeral and vowed to never do such a thing again. And that's the learning. So thank you for, for seeing that in me. I, uh, it's what I'm going for. Wow. It's beautiful, Ari. Very, very beautiful. I'm learning so much about you in this conversation, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure our listeners are. We do have to take a music break right now, and I know you brought a song. So could you introduce it? Tell us why you brought this song and, and then we'll play it. I did. I I have a new favorite movie, which is the Barbie movie. Uh, And I did literally go to the theaters three times to go watch it and cry each time. And there's a song that Billie Eilish recorded called What Was I Made For? And it is a beautiful song talking about this sort of sense of I was created and I thought I knew what that was, you know, and for for the character development of like, I thought I was this doll, like, you know, I thought I was this ornamental thing, but now I'm not. And so what am I supposed to be? And what am I supposed to be doing? And, uh, and exploring that. All right, everyone. Enjoy the song by Billy Eilish, What Was I Made For? And we will be back on the other side.
listen to What Was I Made For from the movie Barbie, sung by Billie Eilish. This is one of Ari Hilton's favorite songs, and he brought it to us to share with you tonight. And welcome back to Living Proof with Diana Sheridan and Ari Hilton. I didn't know all this stuff about you as far as hospice work and 30 years and being around death and dying for 30 years. And wow. Something pulled you in that program. That was beautiful. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to admit it came out of like, I realized kind of what I'd gotten myself into when I landed in college and I was suddenly surrounded by evangelical charismatic Christians singing praise music at all hours of the night. And I was a music performance major and I was like, "Uh Oh, I'm in trouble. And, (laughs) and this was the closest sort of queer thing there was because I knew we were doing AIDS work Uh, and so I thought okay that'll work (laughs) Work with that at least I'll be you know and um yeah and I really I just didn't didn't occur to me to not to I think I I still in fact in my you know in my uh in my ordination program we had to write a, a memorial service you know write a funeral and I wrote one for one of my first patients at Lemuel Shattuck, uh, who had passed away. And I had met him, you know, and, and spent some time and really knew him as a person and had never, he didn't have a funeral. There would have been none of that. He was, you know, a thrown away IV drug user from the streets of Boston in 94. Um, and so I wrote this beautiful service you know, 28 years later. And it was so healing. It was so amazing. And to still have it right there in front of me, have that, you know, I can still see Bobby in my mind. Um, That hasn't faded. And it was so dramatic. I think that, you know, sometimes I joke, it's like, that was baptism by fire. Nothing scares me. When you have seen somebody at the very end, you know, dying of, of true AIDS, that's a time we lived through. We know part of our generation's missing, you know? And yeah, you know, and it really, it didn't, it didn't scare me. It didn't bother me. I just thought, oh, okay, well, I'm here for a reason. I'll listen, whatever it is you got. And it truly, I I, I never thought, and when I got to seminary later in life, I uh, I joked, and I actually had a professor freak out and say, you can't say that to anybody. Like, I said, well, when I, you know, if, if when you die, you get to go and be an angel, you know, who knows, right? I said, 
I would like to be able to come back and I would like to be the angel who comes and um, collects people when they die. And I said, I want to bring uh, a big bouquet of balloons and flowers and walk right up to them and go, congratulations, you did it. You made it through life. Yay. And this poor professor, she just about died. She's like, you cannot go around saying things like that. And I'm like, nah, this isn't going to fit, is it? But truly, I, I've always sort of had that sense of like, we get to celebrate this. Death should be celebrated because it means you lived your life. I'm curious, Ari, you chose this song, What I Was Made For, or What Was I Made For, excuse me. I, I'm curious about your your growing up years when you were young in your family and you you mentioned that you're the only one taking your meds in your family. So, you know, it gives us kind of a picture of your family. But when did you know that the body you were given is not the body that felt like you wanted to be there? Um, right away. I always knew who I was as male. I didn't know that I wasn't. In fact, until I was probably about two and a half, um, and most trans kids, by the way, we know by the time we're four, it's it's pretty solidly. Anybody you ask will say between three and four, and it's a it is still a vivid memory. I've written about it. Uh, it was summer, mid seventies. It's hot. You know, my dad is standing there wearing whatever gingham calico, you know, polyester shorts and shoes of some kind, and you know, he's saying, I'm going to go out and work in the garden. And I said, oh, me too. You know, I'm going to go too. And my mother stopped me dead because, you know, I was wearing shorts and funny shoes and like everybody else. And she said, you need to go put a shirt on. And I, I looked very confused at her. And I said, why? Dad's not wearing a shirt. And she said, because little girls wear shirts when they go outside. I had no idea. I was shocked that I was a little girl. It blew my mind. I had no clue. And I suddenly realized I had this visceral, oh God, they don't know who I am. And then realizing that, no, they don't. And I'm not what I think or any of that. So I, I went in, got the shirt and I went outside. I never said another word, but I... God bless that it was the 70s and we all had terrible clothing and my parents were gender neutral enough about it. I had plenty of quote girly clothes, but we all had those polyester bell bottoms and striped shirts that didn't match them at all, but we wore them and posed on rocks and looked adorable. So, so I knew right from the start and I knew I was male. I did not have a male name at all. It was very female, but nicknames quite a bit of the time. And in fact, my dad's nickname for me was always Sport, for which I am still grateful. I've, I've heard people say, oh, what a terrible nickname, Sport. I said, no, he saw me as a boy. I was his son most of the time. He did all the things with me. And it wasn't a daddy's girl situation at all. It was very much a, okay, this is my kid. They're going to learn how to do the things. And ironically, my father was the good chef and baker and so I learned all of those things from him. So my baking, my cooking, all that comes from my dad. And it was just this sense of knowing, I just remember all the way through knowing I was a boy, 
often getting mistaken for one once I got my hair cut the way I wanted it. And I wasn't upset about it, but of course everybody else was me getting mistaken. I was thrilled. I was like, oh, people are actually seeing me. And the biggest win in my life was going to a department store in town and they had like a miniature Walmart of today. And there were all the men's clothes. And I had finally, I got my mother to agree to buy me a sweater from the men's department. And it was ugly as sin. This thing, I can't even imagine how terrible it was, but that was my favorite article of clothing because I bought it off the men's rack. And I was a big 10 year old. I was, I was a big kid. Um, and it just was this moment. And to this day, I can remember standing there in the store holding that sweater going, yes, it's finally. And I, I went out and I got to buy my first deodorant all on my own. And it was, um, it was Menon Musk, probably, or something. It was, it was, a, it was brown and, and it smelled very masculine. And I loved it. I was so thrilled. And my parents, thankfully, they weren't too bad about it. But I was still female. And uh, of course, puberty hit and then yeah, and we're done. So how did you navigate puberty? Not well. I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I don't think any anybody with female reproductive parts really loves that entry into womanhood or adulthood. It's not pleasant. I just, I dealt with it to the best of my abilities. You know, I, I knew how to deal with things. Um I mean, obviously my body going haywire uh, was awful. The funny thing is, is that I have different genetic conditions and whatever, and sort of this leaning. So my very first period came on May 1st, 1987, and it was celebrated because it was May Day, which is of course fertility day, like the kickoff of the fertility season. And I just, so that's why it's burned into my memory. Six months later, I was in seventh grade about halfway through. And I was out shaving all the boys. There's a genetic condition in my family, hirsutism, that has been passed down where I'm at least the fourth or fifth generation of what would have been female in my family who had to shave their faces. Like a full face of hair? Yeah, I could never grow the mustache, but yes, I had the, I had the full beard coming in. And so I was out shaving every boy in my class did you ever want to grow it? Oh, always. I mean, well, I mean, I had to be embarrassed about it and shamed and all of that. And so I had razor burn at all times because I have, I mean, I have a terrible, I've always had, I have a five o'clock shadow, you know, early on. And so I would be like triple shaving in the mornings and, you know, God forbid we had a band competition that we had to be at the high school by, you know, eight in the morning and I wasn't getting back till 11 o'clock at night. I was yeah, I know it's a band geek. Sorry, I played tuba. I was a sousaphone player in the marching band. And and occasionally, you know, other friends would say, is that razor burn? I'd be like, oh, no, no, I just have a rash. And um, and I have, I have a skin condition that causes acne and ingrown hairs and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was just all muddled together. So there was a part of me that was going, yes, it's actually happening. It's working because I presumed my brain that when I was, you know, before I hit puberty, I'm like, well, there's still time. I'll just go through puberty and I'll become a boy. 
And obviously I didn't. And then six months later, I kind of did. So I've gotten to go through puberty three times now. I don't recommend that. Uh, So the first two were challenging and I immediately really knew I was male um, and my body was like trying to, uh, but it couldn't. And I, I had, I ended up having polycystic ovaries and just all, all the complications. And then when I finally uh, came out as trans, which was a long time coming, I was actually 30. When I came out as trans, I had come out to my former partner early on in the relationship and she wasn't able to be there for that. And I being young and wanting a relationship stuffed it back down and just decided, okay, I'll just be really butch. You know, I can be a butch lesbian fine. I'll, I'll do my best with it. And over time, I just couldn't. And when I finally transitioned from female to male, I started taking testosterone and went through what it's like to go through puberty as a boy. And it's a treat and it helps you understand boys more. We have hormones too, and (laughs) just different and raging. And it's like, I, Cut down a tree one day with a dull axe because I could, you know, that just came out of nowhere. And, you know, and the acne and the hair growing and just all that. And my voice cracked and I went through a full, like my voice changing. And there was, there was a lot. So yeah, three, three times through puberty is enough. I don't need to do it again. I'm good. And I still take my weekly shot. I give myself a shot of testosterone every week, keep myself upright and I build muscle nicely. So that's good. And you're happy completely now because you're all out and free and I mean, with your, with your gender. Oh, with my gender. Yeah. I'd still like one more surgery. I'm also a type one diabetic. So that throws surgeries into wonky zones, problem zones, and just finding a a good surgeon. Obviously where I live in Maine, we don't have any, there just aren't gender affirmation surgeons where I live. And so over time, I will find the right person to see if what I want done can be done. Uh, and if not, that's okay. I have acceptance of, of my body. I've had the surgeries that I can have. You know, I had the internal organs removed and that was the best thing that's ever happened. I had a full radical uh, chest reconstruction. The irony being is that I still have to get ultrasounds and mammograms because <laughs> I still have tissue. I still have tissue and lymph nodes and because it's a, it's a reconstruction. It's not just a radical double mastectomy. So I still get to go in yearly and get, and yeah, that's fun. Is that awkward for you or the technician? I started having to do it so early because I did a lot of my transition work through family planning and I was a guinea pig there and they decided they were going to try to write grants and I was the, hey, let's see how far we can take this grant. And so I started getting ultrasounds probably in my early 30s, early to mid 30s. So Not so much. And the techs, I mean, obviously I live in a very small town. We have like the same two techs coming in and they always reassure me. They're like, you know, we see at least one man a week. You know, it's really not as uncommon. And I've always said that it wouldn't be breast cancer. It wouldn't be the cancer that would kill me. It would be the irony. If I were to get breast cancer, that would kill me. Not the the cancer itself. Just the thought of I had them removed 
<laughs> you know, it's like, oh, come on. And and I I don't say that just completely lightly, but I'm at risk. You know, I I I have risks. I've had cancer, you know, in my life. So I know it's a part of what I contend with. I suppose maybe that's part of my easygoingness when it comes to parts of my life, because as one doctor recently told me ever so kindly, wow, you're on borrowed time, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. I am on borrowed time. I have cheated death more times than I can count. Serious illnesses, being a type one diabetic. I have survived a couple of illnesses that people don't usually survive. It's impressive. And thankfully I have people in my life who remind me that I did survive them. So, you know, I must have something to keep doing. Exactly. That's what I say. And speaking about doing something, you, you're so knowledgeable about gender identity and and your compassionate self and your patience and your gentleness and uh, just listening to you i'm just in the zen mode you know i'm just you just drop me inward and so ari i'm just curious about what are you how are you helping other people because you mentioned something about teaching around gender and helping people i do um i don't do a lot of teaching at this point uh covid kind of really limited my in-person teaching. I still do some. I have a usual standing gig um, for a nursing and psychology uh, seminar uh, day where there's, it's a diversity day, but I go in and I talk for about an hour and a half and answer questions and talk about what it means to be a transgender person. And I'm light and I'm funny. And I will tell the more serious parts of my story, but I really wanna be in dialogue with people. And uh, I suppose the rewarding moment on that was one of the people who organizes it emailed me later and said, I want you to know that somebody came to me and they came out as trans. And they said it was because of me standing there and saying, it's okay. and you." get to be yourself. So I guess on that level, I don't ever have to do another gig again if I was able to pull that off. I try to be out, uh, honestly, in situations. I live in a small town where everybody kind of knows anyway. Uh, most people have forgotten, but I still get the occasional, do you have a sister? I feel like I know you. I deal with that every so often, but I live my life out. And that is a choice to say that when you meet me, all your preconceived notions of what a trans person is, they have to shift. They have to change because you realize I'm just another person. And I'm in the middle of the grocery store buying ice cream because I love ice cream and no other reason there my whole trans agenda is like i got to get groceries today you know and at the same time <laughs> you know it's like i i got a vacuum later that's my agenda that's my whole queer agenda as a grand person i i don't you know i'm not out there to fix the you know and having that openness about myself, whether I come out or not, uh, I think people just read that in me, that openness. Um, and I can't get through a supermarket without at least one person telling me half of their life story and what's good. Because I'm 
dumb enough to stand there and go, you know, that's a nice looking piece of fruit, isn't it? And 20 minutes later, I'm like, well, it was really nice meeting you. Um, I need to go get, I need to check out because this frozen thing is melting. you. Um, but it was really lovely talking to you. I see that. I could see that. I could see that because you have that look about you, you know, and you're going to listen, right? Yeah. People know. <laughs> That's it. I I listen. I just sit there and I go, okay, yeah, uh, wow, that's a lot you've been through. Oh my goodness. I at least got to make it out of the produce section. I've only made it eight feet into the store. <laughs> oh my. And everybody else on the aisle looking at you guys, you guys are still yes. there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then I find, you know, and then a friend finds me and, you know, it's a 20 minute catch up. And I'm like, well, I was going to get home, but. <laughs> well, Ari. <laughs> You know, we could talk to you forever, but we do have to close our show. And, you know, it's been so much fun talking with you and learning from you. We just have one last question, which is words of wisdom, words of wisdom to anyone listening. You said you helped this one person actually come out as trans because of your presence and your ability to make them feel like it was okay. What do you want people to know? Find your truest inner self, whatever that is, and embrace it. And every day you bring that part of yourself out a little more and know that it is scary and it is awkward and you are going to regret it a lot of the time. But those moments where that you is there and you are present and you are in alignment with whatever the world is and where you're supposed to be at that moment, you'll know. And that's when you reach someone else. That is when you feel the connection and somebody feels the connection in you. That's for me, how I live in the world, how I want to is to create these bonds and find these places where we see each other as humans and want to share that grander, for me, divine interconnectedness. So as corny as it is, to thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. You know, find that inner true you and embrace. Thank you so much for gracing us with your words of wisdom and your life story, a little bit of your life story. You've really helped us be more understanding and appreciative of you. And we are, like we said earlier, so happy and proud that you are part of our family. Definitely. And we love you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I love you and love that we are family. Yes. So, thank you. Yes. So it is time to say goodbye. And we just want you to remember that just like Ari, you too can be living proof that through being visible and vibrant, you can make this world a better world. This is Diana and Sheridan, and we'll be back next month. Until then, good, good night. night. I step out of the ordinary. I can feel my soul ascending. I'm on my way. Can't stop. You can do the same, yeah. 
Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roanoke Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.